Welcome to Westport Road Baptist Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us for today's message. Westport Road Baptist Church is located at the corner of Hurstbourne Lane and Westport Road in Louisville, Kentucky. If you have a Bible, please have it handy and prepare your heart and mind as our pastor, Chip Pendleton, brings us the Word of God. Take your Bibles, turn on Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We've been going through a sermon series called Troublemaker and uh, looking at the fact that, that Jesus seemed to always be causing trouble wherever he went, even if that wasn't his intention, uh, as we come upon the last week of his life here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the emptiness of a closed mind. Has anybody ever met anybody here that's just stubborn and refused to admit they were wrong about anything? All right, one or two of you. Uh, have, is anybody here stubborn and refused to admit you're wrong? Uh, about anything. What's becoming more and more of a problem, uh, as we see in our country today, nobody can admit they're wrong. Nobody can look at the other side. Nobody can try to to think about, well, uh, do they have a good point here, or should I consider what they say? It's just, we think we're right, we know we're right, and nobody's going to convince us otherwise. We don't care about the facts. We've got our mind made up, and absolutely nothing is going to change it. We're hard-headed, we're stubborn, we have a closed mind. And we see it all the time. Uh, the first church I pastored out in Trimble County, uh, there's a guy by the name of Eugene Roberts. And he was in his 80s at the time, and uh, uh, him and three ladies had been baptized together. They didn't have a baptistry in the church, and they used to drive all the way into Louisville to Walnut Street. They got baptized when they were children, and they were arguing about what age they were baptized. And he said they were seven. The other lady said they were six. They argued about it for months until finally the lady went to a friend's house who was baptized with him, found her mother's Bible, brought it to church, and said, Look, we were six, not seven. And he said, I can't believe she wrote the wrong date in the Bible. And, uh, you know... He's not going to admit he's wrong, no matter what's going on. And we're all that way at one time or another. Uh, Dawn and I had gotten a new van one time, and we were on our way on vacation. And uh, I pulled in. I was driving and, and pulled in to get gas. And Dawn said, the gas tank is on the other side of the van. And I said, I know which side the gas tank's on. And she said, no, it was on this side in our old van. It's on the other side in the new one. And I said, Dawn, it's not just your van. You may drive it all the time. It's my van too. I know which side the gas tank's on. And then I get out and I said, it's on the other side, just as I'd said all along. So, you know, you just have trouble ever admitting you're wrong. Well, we're going to look at the trial of Jesus today. And we're going to see how, from beginning to end, the religious leaders acted with a closed mind and what we need to do about that today when we have that same issue. And the first thing we see is this. Instead of pride, we need the humility to admit that we're wrong. Instead of pride, we need the the ability to admit that we're wrong. Look down to verse 55. Verse 55. In in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out against me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all of the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. 
The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they couldn't find any, even though many witnesses had come forward. And so when we start here, we see something really interesting going on. The the religious leaders have gotten together. These are the main religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's a part of the Sanhedrin, we're told. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 influential people, both clergy and lay people, the most influential, righteous people who made the decisions for the governing of Jerusalem. Now, the Romans had the ultimate authority, but the Sanhedrin did all of the day-to-day things. And so these, this is the religious council that's gotten together to judge Jesus. And it's interesting that from beginning to end, they don't care about things like justice or what's right or what's true. They're only trying to get their way. And we see that here at the very beginning in verse 55. It's interesting what Jesus is talking about here when he says, Hey, why did you come against me with, with swords and clubs? Every day I was in the temple teaching. What's he talking about here? According to the Jewish law and the Sanhedrin, you could not have a court case unless it was in the daytime. And the reason for that was everything needed to be out in the open for everybody to see and everyone to know what was going on. You couldn't have any secret tribunals meeting. Everything had to be out in the open. But they didn't care about that. Here at the very beginning, what they're doing is we're going to have a trial that is illegal according to our own law. And then the next thing that we see is the religious leaders tried to bring together false witnesses to lie about Jesus so that they could put him to death. And so the the best religious people in the land are doing an illegal trial and they're they're, uh, trying to get false witnesses. Now, why would they think that was okay? Why would religious people think it was okay to lie about somebody and to hold an illegal trial? And the answer is very, very simple. It comes down to pride. Jesus had hurt their pride. Jesus had disagreed with them from the beginning. Jesus had talked about them. Jesus had told stories about them. He had come into the temple and tore down the booths of the money changers and and scattered all that was there. And they were angry at Jesus. They thought Jesus was coming in and trying to hurt them, trying to hurt their position, trying to make them look bad. And they were so angry at him, the end justified the means. It was okay to lie. It was okay to have uh, a trial that was illegal because Jesus was somebody that was hurting them personally. He was hurting their pride. He was making them look bad. And anything to stop him was then okay. And we do the exact same thing today. One of the reasons that we're so close-minded and that we, we never admit that we're wrong is pride. We don't want to say, well, I was wrong. I messed up. That makes us look weak, we think. That makes us look like we did something that was wrong. And so instead of admitting it, we just double down on it and get ourselves into more and more trouble because we're refusing to admit we've messed up because of our silly pride. In 1993, on Dateline, NBC did a story about GM trucks blowing up. Now, anybody remember that? Uh, anybody? Uh, yeah, a few of you did. It, it was a, it was, they said that they had run these tests and that if you hit the truck at the right angle in the gas tank, the truck blew up. And they ran that on Nightline. Well, GM immediately said, it's not true. We've run all these tests. That, that's not what, what happened. And uh, as a matter of fact, they did 22 independent tests. And everyone said that's not what was happening. But when Dateline showed it, the, the car, the truck literally blew up when hit at the right angle. And so GM said, well, then we're going to sue because you're lying about us. 
And on a Monday, G, uh, uh, NBC came out and they said this, our tests are valid, you're the ones that are wrong, and you deserve whatever you get. A $105 million lawsuit from someone who had their car blow up, GM had to pay because of the Dateline article. And then someone that worked on Dateline came out and said, we put explosives in the gas tank, and that's why it blew up. And immediately GM came back and said, sorry, <laughs> you know, we, we, didn't get, we, we, we didn't really mean that. And then they had to pay not only the $105 million, they had to go on TV and say they were sorry and that they were wrong and that they blew up the gas tank. But then this is what they said at the end of it. But we still believe what we said was right and they blow up. So even after all of that, they refused to admit they were wrong. Well, it wasn't what we thought. We did rig it. We did blow it up. But we still think they would have blown up if it right. Refusal to ever admit you're wrong. You double down and you just get yourself more and more into trouble. And we do that all the time. And it comes from pride. So what's the, the counter to always thinking you're right and to thinking your pride's hurt if you have to admit you're wrong? And the counter to that is something called humility. And here's the thing, you're never going to get close to God unless you have humility for one very important reason. It takes humility to come to God and say, I messed up, I sinned, I did what was wrong, Uh, I did things I shouldn't have done, and I need your forgiveness. God will forgive, God will restore, and God will continue relationship, but it hinges on us admitting we're wrong. Over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, If we claim to be without sin, if we refuse to admit we're wrong, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're not deceiving other people if you you refuse to admit you're wrong. People know when you're you're wrong. Uh, You're just not admitting it. You're just deceiving yourself. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we call God a liar And the truth is not in us. So when you think, I'm not going to admit it, I'm not going to say I messed up, then you can never be in the kind of relationship with God you were supposed to be in because it all starts with admitting you were wrong and going to God for forgiveness. Now, I've never had much of a problem with that for this reason. I know I do stuff wrong all the time, you know. So it's not any, any great epiphany to me to know I mess up, you know. I know for some of you, you're thinking, Chip, you've messed up before? I can't believe that. You know, Dawn never gave any indication you ever messed up on anything, you know, before as you were in there. But, you know, I know that. So that's not one of the issues I have. As a matter of fact, that's something I try to teach my kids um, all the time. Whenever something would happen and I would, I would do something wrong, like uh, I remember one time uh, I'd yelled at Andrew about something and, and it ended up not being his fault. And I went and sat down with him and said, hey, I just want you to know I was wrong. You know, I shouldn't have got mad and I should have found out what was going on and I messed up. And what I wanted him to learn from that was to say, you know, it's okay to say you're wrong. As a matter of fact, that's what you should do. Now, what he probably got from that was, well, just dad's wrong and I'm right. But, you know, you know, that's what I was trying to teach him uh, anyway. So instead of pride, we need the humility to admit we're wrong. Our scripture goes on. And the second thing we see is this, is that the second problem with uh, refusing to admit you're wrong is sometimes we have a fear of change. And instead of the fear of change, we need the excitement of moving forward. Instead of the fear of change, we need the excitement of moving forward. Look down to verse 60 again. 
But they didn't find any charges against Jesus, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two men came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it within three days. And then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Aren't you going to answer? What's this testimony these people are bringing against you? So they bring all these witnesses in. Nobody can agree on a story. Okay, And so it's pretty obvious this is a fake trial with a bunch of lying witnesses. And then finally they get two witnesses to agree to one thing. He said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it within three days. And so they said, well, that's it. He said he's going to destroy the temple. He's a heretic. Now, if he's going to rebuild it in three days, I think, well, that's okay, just as long as you build it back, you know, or something like that. But, you know, that's the thing. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to burn this church down, but it's okay, I'll rebuild it in three days or something like that. Don't worry about it. And so they bring Jesus to them. They find two people that come together on a lie against him. And again, why do they think that's okay to do? Why is the chief priest in verse 62 so angry at Jesus and said, answer, what do you say against this testimony these witnesses are bringing against you? And one of the problems they had, one of the reasons they refused to look at right and wrong and what Jesus was saying was there was a fear of change. Everything was changing with Jesus. This country prophet had shown up and turned their whole world upside down. The people in the communities that were considered the most respected were the people that Jesus had challenged. He'd turn over their booths in the temple. He had directly told stories that had humiliated the religious leaders in front of entire crowds of people. They were being laughed at, and they couldn't take this anymore. Man, where was all this coming from? Some country bumpkin coming in and challenging all of our authority. We walk into the room, and people used to look at us and bow down and give us respect, and now we walk in, and Jesus says, you shouldn't call any man father except God. You know, don't, don't bow down to anyone but God, and they, they're taking away everything that we valued and everything that was important to us. And again, the problem is they're fearing the change that's taking place. And so they're looking at all of the changes of Jesus and they're thinking it has to be stopped. Something has to be done about it. I used to pastor Buckner Baptist Church, which no longer exists, but it's about a high school there in, in, uh, in Odom County. It doesn't exist because I pastored there. Okay, <laughs> I want you to know that. All right, So just take that off the plate right from the start. All right. But, but anyway, uh, when I was at the church, there were two buildings, uh, and then there was a, a little white building that connected them in the middle. And so you, the original white building was there, then you had the first sanctuary and the second sanctuary. The building in the middle was falling apart, literally falling apart. It was rotting, uh, the boards were breaking, it was dangerous to even walk through from one to the other, and the estimate we got to repair it was more than it would cost to tear it down and rebuild it. And so the church was going to tear it down and rebuild it. But there were a few people in the church who was adamant against tearing it down. And they, they would get mad and, and all red-faced. And they would, they would argue at business meetings why we needed the old building and not to tear it down, even though it was going to cost more than a new building would. And finally, I got with one of the couples and I said, you know, I don't understand. The whole thing is rotting and falling apart. Why do you want to keep it? And the man looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Chip, that's the building I met my wife in. And we fell in love and got married in that building. And when my wife got cancer and died, that's where her funeral was. And now you're going to take it away from me. And suddenly it all became clear. The change was something that meant he was being threatened 
And that's why he had to fight back. And that's one of the things going on in our scripture passage. The change is there and it's causing them to fight back. You see, anytime anything moves forward, there's change. And anytime there's change, there's fear. Both of those things are involved. If you're going to move forward in any area of your life, there's got to be change. If you say, I'm going to drop a few pounds, you got to change something. If you say, you know, I'm going to get in better shape, you've got to start exercising. Anything's going to take, any change is going to take uh, a, a, a different course of action. And anytime there's a different course of action that is not comfortable, you fear it. And that's what's going on in our scripture passage. That's why one of the things they, they taught us uh, in one of the conferences I was at is that whenever anything, you make any change, a new program, do away with an old program, whenever you make any change, ask yourself, what's the fear that people have and what are they losing? Because it's always there, no matter how small it may be. Uh, you can say, we're going to do away with this program because nobody came to it this year. There will be people upset that you're doing away with the program. What's the fear? What's causing them to have that fear through the change that's there? And so they were losing something. They were losing respect, authority, power. Uh, Their pride had been hurt. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this is your fault and therefore anything to stop you is okay. Uh, When I went to pastor uh, another church, I'll talk about all my old churches today. Uh, I'll talk about you all uh, in heaven because I plan on retiring here or something like that. But uh, anyway, uh, the first Sunday I was there, somebody came up to me and they said, when I was growing up, every Sunday we closed the service with doxology. And when the last pastor came, he did away with the doxology. And so will you bring it back? And I said, well, you know, I'll think about it. And then I had four or five other people say, oh, we used to always sing that doxology. That last pastor got rid of it. And so one Sunday I said, well, maybe we should sing the doxology, I told Dawn. So we sang the doxology. That Sunday morning, all these people came up to me and said, oh, thank you. I hadn't felt like I'd been in church in seven years. (laughs) Because without the doxology, you're just really not worshiping. You know, that's how it was. And so any change brings the fear of a loss. And that's what we have in our scripture passage here. And, the, and so what's the antidote to that? The antidote is really very simple. The antidote is the excitement of moving forward. Tell me one thing in your life that was made better without a change. Tell me one thing in the Bible that God did significantly that didn't involve change. And so we have to understand change isn't bad, but you've got to confront what am I losing and what am I getting in return? And you've got to be excited about moving forward and not just fear what the new things are. That brings us to the third thing that we see. Instead of defending ourselves, we need to be listening. Instead of defending ourselves, we need to be listening. Now, some of you right now have already cut me off because I've offended you. I am always right, and I don't want to hear anything about it, and I'm not listening to you anymore. So re-engage here for just a second. Look down to verse 63. Verse 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. 
You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So up in verse 62, the high priest is angry at Jesus because he's refusing to answer back. And so the question is, would the charges obviously trumped up? With these people obviously lying, why isn't Jesus defending himself? Why is he not saying anything? And the reason he's not is that Jesus sees a bigger picture than the religious leaders do. The picture Jesus sees is this one. I came to this world to go to the cross to die for the sins of all mankind. This is what I'm wanting to do. And so I'm not here to defend myself. I'm not here to get out of anything. I know the big picture, and I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to willingly give myself to God's plan. But what about the religious leaders then? Their problem is just the opposite. Their problem is they don't see the big picture, and all that they are doing is trying to defend themselves. You see, sometimes what happens is when somebody disagrees with you or when somebody points out something different, instead of looking at what they've had to say and considering it, all we do is go into defensive mode and then we attack. First we defend and then we attack because we feel like if they disagree with me, they're attacking me. Have you ever seen something just go nuclear immediately? You know, maybe, maybe something like, you know, uh, it looks like the, the chicken's getting burned on the bottom. Chicken's getting burned on the bottom. Well, at least I'm making the chicken. I wasn't sitting on the couch being lazy all day long like you have been. And you're thinking, man, that went nuclear quick. You know what happened? That instead of listening, we immediately have to defend and attack. And, and so that, that's our, our modus operandi. Instead of thinking about something or what's going on, it all goes back to I'm being threatened. Therefore, I have to respond. If somebody disagrees with you about something, if somebody shows you something different, it doesn't mean that you have to attack them. Maybe the best thing to do would be to listen to what they're saying and to consider it. For the religious leaders, there was no listening to anything Jesus had to say. There was no considering anything he had to say. There was only defending themselves and trying to destroy him. Now, here's the problem. What Jesus said in verse 64 was worth listening to if you were the religious leaders. They think they've got him in a box. They can't prove anything. And so finally, the high priest Caiaphas asked this question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God, or not? I command you under oath to answer. Now, there's only two ways Jesus can answer that question. Yes. If he answers yes, then he's saying, I am a heretic. I'm saying I'm God, and therefore you should put me to death. Or he could say, no, which means my whole life and ministry has been a fraud, and you can show me for what I am and get rid of me. So what does Jesus answer? They needed to listen and not just defend. In verse 64, Jesus gives the answer. He says, well, you said I was. But from now on, I tell you this, one day you're going to see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with his angels. So what he's saying basically is, yeah, I am the Messiah, and one day you're going to stand before me in judgment instead of me standing before you. Now, if you're one of the religious leaders, is that something you think you should listen to? One day you think you're judging me? One day you're going to be on your knees trembling when I'm judging you. I would think that was something you might want to listen to if you were them. 
But they didn't want to listen to it because they've already got their minds made up. Jesus is a bad person. You can do anything to destroy him. And they are defending themselves, not listening to anything that's going on. And again, that's often where we fall over and over again. Over in Acts chapter 17, there's an interesting passage of Scripture about the church of Berea. And in this passage of Scripture, basically we're told Paul goes to this city he preaches, they believe. Paul goes to this city, he preaches, they don't believe. And then we get to the church at Berea, Acts 17, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, he went straight to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. They received the message with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. And as a result, many believed. So what's it say about the church at Berea? Paul came in and preached something new. They didn't say, ooh, change. You know, I'm afraid of it. They didn't say, ooh, I've heard about you, bad person. Paul preached something new, and we're told they were of noble character. And what made them of noble character? We're told they went home, got out their Bibles, studied to see if what Paul was saying was true. And when they found out it was true, they believed it. They weren't closed-minded at all. They didn't just listen and believe or listen and reject. They said, is it true? I'm going to try to find out. And that's the antidote to just defending yourself to listen and to examine the truth. And that brings us to the last thing that we see. Instead of making it personal, we need to keep to the issues. Instead of making it personal, we need to keep to the issues. Look down to verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. So you begin here and you see the high priest is really angry. He's gotten exactly what he wants. Jesus has admitted he's the son of God, therefore he should be put to death. He rips his robes. He asks the rest of the council. The rest of the council says, put him to death. He's worthy of death. He's blasphemed God. And then look at verse 67. Then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. They slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who's hitting you? These are the best people in Jerusalem. These are the most righteous religious people in Jerusalem. They've just gotten everything they wanted. Jesus has admitted he's the son of God. He's been sentenced to death. It should be over. They've lied to get it. They've cheated. They've done everything else. They've held an illegal trial, but they finally got the verdict they wanted. But they're not even satisfied with that. These good religious people then get up. And as Jesus has his arms tied behind his back in front of him, they spit in his face and he can do nothing to stop him. They punch him with his, their fists and then they begin to smack him in the face. And they say, prophesy, O son of God, who just smacked you in the face? Who just spit on you? Why are they so out of control? Why are they so angry? Because for them, it has nothing to do with the issue any longer. It's personal. It has to do with a personal hatred of Jesus. And again, that's what happens with us. 
Whenever it comes to, okay, somebody has challenged me or somebody has disagreed with me and and we start defending and attacking and then pretty soon it immediately becomes personal and we go off the rails. Suddenly this is a bad person because they've disagreed with me. I don't want anything to do with you because you don't see it the way that I do. Your politics is different than my politics, therefore you're an evil, bad person. My goodness, you go to a different denomination than I do. Not really sure you're saved. You know, and so, you know, that's all the kind of things that we're doing because suddenly it's become personal instead of us looking at the issue. I remember when I was in college, I had a a friend of mine that was just starting to drink too much. And so one night, like three or four of us got together with him and we said to him, well, one of us, not me, uh, got to say to him, hey, man, we think you've just been drinking too much and it's really starting to hurt you. And you know what he said? He said, Oh, really? You think I'm drinking too much? Well, how about this? I saw you kissing Bobby's girlfriend last week. Which is worse, me drinking a little bit or you kissing his girlfriend? And then suddenly the whole group gets mad at each other. It all became personal all of a sudden. Because instead of listening to what was being said, you're drinking too much, it's hurting you. He had to defend, he had to attack, and he had to make it personal. And so that's still what we do. I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. I'm not going to say I've messed up. I'm not going to say I'm doing things I shouldn't do. I'm going to attack you personally and try to destroy you. I'm going to spit in your face, punch you with my fist, slap at you and mock you instead of ever admitting I might be wrong. Wow, that's a little extreme, isn't it? But that's exactly what we do over and over again. We kill the messenger instead of listening to the message. You know, couples do that all the time when they fight. Uh, you know, one, one thing comes up, one issue, and suddenly they bring everything that's happened in the past back together. You know, you know oh, yeah, you think this happened today? Well, I remember what you did 25 years ago. You know, it is still burned in my mind, you know, and they, and they, they put it there, and suddenly we're, we're rehashing things that should have been resolved a long time ago. Instead of keeping things current, we bring up all of this stuff, and we make it personal. We do it within our politics. We do it in politics all the time. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. We do it in politics. And I'll give you two examples here in politics. One thing. For a lot of Democrats, Donald Trump could do anything in the world and it would be bad. He could cure cancer and you'd say, there's Donald Trump putting cancer doctors out of business. (laughs) But Republicans are the same way. You know, Democrats have a Trump derangement syndrome. Republicans have an AOC derangement syndrome. You know, Ocasio-Cortez, anything she said or did would be bad. You know, she could invent a car tomorrow that ran on air and cost $10. And we'd say, I'm not buying that commie car. You know, there's no way I'm going to do that. You know, and so, you know, we're not, we're not listening. We're not trying to think about things. It suddenly became personal. And when it becomes personal, there's no way of coming back to a middle ground. Because now they're bad people. Now what they're doing is evil, and they have to be stopped. It used to be in our country, Democrat, Republican, it didn't matter. We we might not agree with the other person, but we felt like they had the best interest of our country at heart. And now we're thinking, no, if you're one or the other, you know, you're just a bad person. You're an evil person. You've got to be stopped. But we do it in every area of our life. Think about how denominations and churches and everything else fight and split because we make everything personal. And so we can never get to resolving issues because it's all personal with who we are 
and with what we're doing. Crystal Preston uh, is a young single mom that lives in Dallas, Texas. And she recently lost her job and uh, was trying to get another job but didn't have a car that she could drive back and forth to work and didn't know what she was going to do. Her son is, is uh, just 11 years old, and, and as he was talking with his mom one day, he got a new Xbox for Christmas. He said, Mom, I need some Xbox games. And she said, Xbox games? I can't even afford to pay for your Xbox. Maybe if we didn't have your Xbox, things wouldn't be the way they are now. I, I have no car to get to work, and you're worried about Xbox games. Now, if you're an 11-year-old boy... There's a lot of different ways you could have handled that. How do you think most 11-year-old boys would have said that? Mom's mean. Uh, She said nasty things to me. I don't like her. I need to get some Xbox games. So he went out and he got him a job. He started mowing yards and doing some other things. And his mom thought, well, great. You mow all the yards you want and get your stupid Xbox games. And then after about four months... He said, Mom, I got a surprise for you. And got a picture right here. He was standing in front of a car that he'd bought for his mom for $900 that he had saved with all he'd done. He'd sold his Xbox. He sold all of his Xbox games, and he worked until he bought his mom a car. Now, why was he able to do that? Because instead of reacting and making something personal, instead of getting angry back and defending yourself... An 11-year-old boy really listened to what his mom was saying. It's financially hard times. I can't even get to work. And so he instead went out and got a job and bought his mom a car. You see, every time somebody disagrees with you, doesn't mean you have to go on a nuclear attack. Doesn't mean you have to defend yourself. It doesn't mean it hurts your pride. You are wrong sometimes. I am wrong sometimes. If most of us admit it, we're wrong a lot of the time. Some of you think you're infallible, and when you leave this room, you won't know which side of the parking lot you parked your car on. And so don't think you can't be wrong sometimes. One of the hardest things we're ever going to get to do is to say, I'm wrong. But until you do it, you're never going to have the relationship with God you want. Because our whole faith rests on one thing, that God forgives us when we don't deserve it and restores us. But we have to be willing to admit we're wrong before God can do that. Let's have a prayer. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Father, instead of being prideful and refusing to admit that our way isn't working and that we've done things that are wrong and that We've messed up. Father, help us just to lay that before you and find the love and grace and forgiveness and new life that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to this time of invitation. And during this time, one of the things I would say is for you to look at your life and say, okay, what am I refusing to admit right now? Where am I messing up? What are things I'm doing that are wrong that I'm just refusing to admit right now? Because if you're refusing to admit it, the only person, again, you're deceiving is yourself, as our scripture told us. So you get to the point of saying, okay, Lord, I've messed up. And you take that to God and you seek forgiveness. The the glory of our faith is that we have a faith where we find forgiveness, 
not perfection. Christians aren't perfect people, they're forgiven people. And so you need to find the place of taking all of that garbage to God and finding release in it. Maybe you're here today and you've never even gotten to that point in your life. You're at the very beginning. You've never even gone to God and say, I need you as Lord and Savior. I can't do it on myself. And maybe you've come here week after week and you've heard the sermons and you believe in God, but you've never gotten around to really saying, I need to give myself to him. I need to humble myself. I need to say, your way's right. And you come and say, I want Jesus in my life. I want him to forgive me of my sins. I want to follow him in baptism. You can do that this morning as well. And maybe you're here and you know that this is the church God has for you and it's the place God's leading you. And you just want to come and say, I want to join this church and be a part of what this church is doing. Whatever God is leading you to do, this is your time. If you just have a heavy heart and you want to come pray at this altar, then come and do that. But give yourself to God. None of us are perfect. We need God. We need God's forgiveness and His grace. Well, when you go out this week, remember, you may be wrong. You know, have an open mind as you go out on some things. Hey, don't forget our Easter services coming up in two weeks. Uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, 9.30 and 11. 8, 9, 30, and 11. People will come on Easter if you invite them. Invite your family and friends. Don't just say, I'm going to. Do it. People will come on Easter. Invite them to our church services. Please, please. And then if you can, as many of you as can, come to our 8 o'clock service. We really, really need that to free up uh, the other two services. So, uh, and also you get a good parking spot if you come uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning. So that, that'll help as well. Well, let's close with a prayer if we could. Fathers, we go out this week. Help us to realize that you're the one that's infallible, not us, and that we need to be willing to listen and to consider and to admit that when we're wrong, knowing that when we do, it only makes our life better instead of continuing to live a wrong way. Help us to do that with open hearts and minds and in humility. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and that it spoke to you. If you have prayer needs or want more information about us, we invite you to stop by our website, mywrbc.org, and click on Contact. Please use the word podcast in the subject line. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, keyword mywrbc. At Westport Road Baptist Church, we love God and love people. Please join us for Sunday morning service at either 9.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. We also have Sunday school for all ages during both service times. Thanks again for listening, and join us next week for another message from God's Word.